newspaper articles, radio ads, through friends, through postcards, inviting people to come to churches to hear what the Church of Jesus Christ has to say, what the Bible has to say about these important questions. If you are such a guest, a visitor, we welcome you today. And for all of you, the rest of you who are here, I ask that you pray for me because uh, we're in for a ride. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are here once again at the foot of your throne, worshiping you, giving you glory, giving you praise, singing to you because you alone are worthy of all of that. And now the word, your word is being opened up to us in the Bible. But unless you help us, we have nothing to do with it. For all the preparation that I did, for all the help that the elders gave me, we're not going to get anywhere unless you stir your Holy Spirit in us to hear, to see, to understand that which you want us to know, how you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Let Jesus be clear this morning. Help me now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. That Barna survey, uh, just poll question that was put up there just for people to answer this year or last year whenever people were asked, um, it goes back to when Dwight Eisenhower was the president of the United States. Uh, I like Ike. Uh, none of you were alive, I think, during that presidency. Uh, any hands? Oh, snap. <laughs> All right, well, anyway, um, so Dwight Eisenhower was the president. He was also the supreme allied commander of the U.S. of the uh, forces in Europe during World War II, and so he was quite popular. And as president, he had one thing that he said. I think this is actually a campaign statement. He said that, I don't care where Americans or what Americans believe as long as they're in church on Sunday. It was his way of saying it doesn't matter what you believe. Just go, act like you believe, because this is what makes good citizens. Forty years later, my sophomore year in high school, I'm on my high school's uh, student leadership camp or retreat or something. I mean, it was weird. It was a retreat, but it wasn't a church retreat. And we were all singing, like, kumbaya songs, and someone was reading the Lorax out loud to us. That's, when hippies are in charge of your education, this is what you get, so... It's, uh, and that night, as I was sitting down, uh, just in my bunk bed, I was, uh, had my Bible open, and uh, that was more of a prideful statement than anything else, I think. I just wanted people to admire me, because if there are any Christians out there, they'd see me. Um, it wasn't because I was particularly holy. But someone, uh, someone said, what are you reading there? And I said, my Bible? It's like, what are you into that crap for? And so it goes back and forth a couple times like that, and I'm just kind of quailing a little bit, and the best that I can re uh, just spit out there is, it's important to me. And then, thankfully, some, uh, you know, just some upperclassman told this other guy, hey, shut up, leave him alone. And then that was the, that was the end of my courageous encounter. Um, 30 years later, and we have one of our college students, uh, said last Sunday, that um, at school, he, was, he went to someone's, uh, someone's room, you know, there, it was a study session, and he had, he was reading the book that we're studying, Jesus is Greater Than Religion, and it was just kind of out there. And this classmate 
says, are you looking for God? And so we have seen just in our nation the opinion of people who hold to anything, especially to anything firm and solid as truth, to be just on the slide. And it's not very different from this scene in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 to 31, that uh, was already read for us. John already read that. But let me, get, let me paint this picture. Paul, who'd been preaching in Athens, all right, in that place of all, I mean, this was Cambridge for us, all right, or Boston. This was where all intellect, where all learning was being hashed out, and they were itchy for it. They're, they longed, they loved having their ears tickled. And Paul had been preaching in nearby synagogues. And they said, what is this guy preaching? And they brought him out and said, please, tell us what you have to, what you have to say. Actually, in that, in that sense, maybe Athens was a little bit kinder than the world is right now because I don't hear too many people inviting us to come out and say what it is that we believe. The video that we saw speaks to what Americans think of Christianity and all really organized religions that they're too narrow. And because of that narrowness, they're intolerant. And that is the mortal sin today, to be intolerant. If you're intolerant, forget it, whether it's in religion or race relations or politics. You're done. Pack up. Leave the country. Find some place that's uh, more tolerant of intolerant people. And this is just getting worse. You know, even like 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you said that you were looking for the truth, people would laud you at least. If you said you found the truth back then, they'd still, you know, just throw eggs at you. But today, you know, the state is even worse. It's ironic that uh, just people are being intolerant to those that they think are being intolerant. But the stance is that who could possibly know if there is truth out there? In this postmodern world that we live in, who knows what the truth is. And so, in fact, not having any clue whether there is truth or isn't truth, what I say is going to be my truth. Which brings us to our first point. All our thinking is narrow. This question, is Christianity too narrow, needs to be put in the frame, this understanding that all thinking about faith and understanding is narrow. There has never been this broad-minded, open person who is accepting and saying everything truly is just on equal weighting, equal footing, without being narrow. Paul says this to these people at Mars Hill, Areopagus, Mars Hill, all right, a hill dedicated to hearing about speech and stuff, dedicated to Ares, the Greek god of war, or Mars, the Roman god of war. Same guy, different names. And so, really, this is uh, saying that this is how war is going to be done, through these words. And Paul says, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I pa as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he was telling these Athenians, you have your belief. And it is not, it is pantheistic, 
even including this unknown God. You don't have a name for this God, but you're just saying that, all right, we've got this. We've got all of our bases covered. In the ancient world, that's what you wanted. If you wanted a good harvest, you knew which temple to go to. If you wanted a good wife, you knew which temple to go to. But Paul is saying that you are not as inclusivist as you think. Because what I have to say is that there is a God who is over all, who has made all. And there is no room for him and his and his creation and what you have said and what you have created. It competes for the same space within us. Who or what is in control? These Athenians were saying, we know, or at least we think we know. And Paul is bringing to them this understanding that, so you think you know, but you don't. And here's what the truth is. But people will still say, I just don't know. So how can I judge and say what to believe? They must all have the same validity. I mean, I've never seen Zeus come down, even though the stories say that he did, had some kids that way. So how can I possibly know? So I'm just going to say that they're all good, and what works for you works for you, and just like the one gentleman in the video said, right, that they all point to the same God. And so all that's important is that in the end, we're just worshiping the same God. And Paul gives lie to that. In fact, he gives lie to even this statement. This statement, this person sounds very humble. And maybe you have hold on to this statement. Maybe this is what you believe or have believed. But the twist on that is that what you're actually doing is standing above every religion and saying that my position, my opinion trumps all of these beliefs, I am saying, I am comfortable saying that they're all equally valid. Now, Archimedes will ask you, where is your leverage point? From what vantage point are you qualified to make such a statement? Is that a position that you're willing to stake your life on? It sounds very humble, but you and your desire, are standing as judge. And nothing has changed from Mars Hill, from the Areopagus to today. It is our desire to stand and to judge what we see, what is important to us. And in that, each of us are narrow in our thought. So, you know, one person, uh, Leslie Newbigin, uh, talked about this uh, Indian, uh, just a uh, tale the Maharaja, this king, had an elephant, and he called six blind men to come and investigate one aspect of the elephant, not telling them that was, it was an elephant. And so one would be talk, touching and examining the trunk and said, this is some kind of snake. Another, the tail, saying, this is a rope. Another, a leg, saying that this is a tree trunk. Another, the side, saying that this, this is a firm wall. And this proverb is used quite often as a way of putting forth pluralism, saying that, hey, everyone has some piece of the truth, but no one can have all of the truth. 
So be content with your piece of the truth and be permissive and allowing for other people who have parts of the truth that you cannot possibly. And it might even be true that they become experts of that part of the truth. All right, I know, well, I know some violent Buddhists, but I know lots of peaceful and patient Buddhists as well because they understand, all right, serenity and calmness and that there, it isn't worth getting worked up over these things. And I could aspire to some of that peace and patience. Or I know some Mormons who are the friendliest people. Honest to goodness, the friendliest people I ever met in my life are Mormons. And it comes out of their understanding of how to deal with each other. And I and many of us could learn what it means to show concern and care for others the way that the Mormons do. Because they have become, in one sense, expert of their little glimpse of the truth. But, but you see, the entire proverb breaks down. Because ultimately what you have in the room is one truth, is one elephant. And you have one guy who knows that it's an elephant. And so the six blind men pushing forth, putting, being put forth as pluralism ignores the fact that there's a king who sees it all, who has the picture. And so the real issue is blindness. Blindness because relativism on these things that are unseen, this agnosticism is what we feel comfortable with, and ignoring the fact that there is an elephant in the room. And we read later in the passage that these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all to repent, for all to live in repentance with the blindness coming off. You see, pluralism is good for society. It is good when we are kind neighbors to each other, but it is bad if you believe the lie that all views are equally valid. You know, Tim Keller, in his book Reason for God, points out that the paradox in the 20th century is that those who said that religions caused the world's intolerance and violence were themselves the ones who created and were guilty of the greatest intolerance and violence. That the view that said that religions were what created evil in the world is what produced Lenin and Stalin and Marx and Castro and Mao and Pol Pot. And if you think I've left out atheism because they say that there is no God out of all of this, no, absolutely not. Because in atheism, and if you are an atheist, I ask you to come up after, after service and talk with me about this if you disagree. In atheism, the statement that there is no God is a faith statement. You are by faith saying that there is no God. And that view, far from being wide and broad, is again a narrow view. And so there are. There is nothing but narrowness in our understanding of this, because it competes for one spot, one place in us, in our hearts. But, even as I've said that we're all narrow, let me say this, the second point, that narrow does not mean wrong. 
Narrow does not mean wrong. We go on in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I appreciate that Paul is showing respect to the Athenians. He's not clubbing them over their heads saying that you are so far off. He shows them respect and even encourages them in their seeking, saying that it is good that they seek. And in this church, you are welcome to seek after God. And raise your questions. But then Paul goes to an exclusive truth claim. He says to these Athenians that there is truth that you can rest upon that does not fail. That is right. You know, even as he says that you should feel your way toward him and find him. There's a blindness there that we're, that's being alluded to, isn't there? And so how? How do we feel around and find our way, find out that there's more to this elephant than this trunk? If someone reveals that there's more, if he moves you around the thing so that you can get in your blindness a bigger picture, or even better, if he opens your eyes, if he reveals to you the truth. Paul through the Holy Spirit, is doing what the writers of the Bible have done since the beginning. From Genesis chapter 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that was in a backdrop saying that it wasn't Bahamut versus Tiamat and the god Marduk slicing Tiamat open and making the universe in her body. And it wasn't the gods of Egypt whom at that time when this was written down by Moses, that they were under slavery and captivity to. God reveals that he alone created out of nothing and made everything. Or what about, he does this again and again in the Old Testament, in Exodus, with the plagues on Egypt. I mean, what, what was up with those plagues? Why plagues? Why does that matter? It wasn't just that he was trying to weaken Pharaoh's control and desire to hold on to the Israelites. It wasn't just that. But these were each statements that God was making and revealing to his people, I am God, not the gods of Egypt who are no gods. And so even when you look at the plagues, these miraculous things, the Nile, the Nile, this was considered to be the source of all life in the Egyptian mythology. The source of all life. And so what does God do? He turns the Nile useless, where it looks blood red because the silt had been just churned up, and now no fish could live in it. And so the source of all life has now become death. That's a pretty powerful statement. Pretty st powerful statement about God revealing who's in control, isn't it? Or what about frogs? I mean, everyone ever wonder, why frogs? So the attendants of Happy, the person, the Greek god over the Nile, were frogs. And so the frogs jumping out of the Nile and becoming a nuisance for everybody, this guy's servants have been chased away. 
And then when they all die, because amphibians, right, they can survive for a little bit when water goes bad, but then they jump out, and then they eventually die, and then you get flies and all those other nasty things. And so every one of the Egyptian gods were taken down, out and broken down and said, no, this is no god at all. Even the sun was blotted from the sky, the most powerful of the Egyptian gods, Ra. And the creator of the sun says, let's hide the sun for a while. And so then, in rescuing his people, God starts off in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, who freed you, who rescued you from Egypt, the land of slavery. God revealing truth. It's narrow. Either they were freed or they weren't. Either God did it or he didn't. Narrow doesn't mean wrong but it does mean that there's no middle ground. Now, the thing is, is that we're so narrow in so many ways, and no one complains about it. I was going to say something about middle C and 261.1 hertz being the exact C, but a song is meant to be sung a particular way. And you deviate from that, and people notice. Do we love our pastor? Yes, we absolutely love our pastor. But he, so he knew, and just the, and the redness, wow. So, and so no one complains. No one faults you for being narrow in your singing, do they? All right, or what about going to the doctor? A diagnosis is not helpful if it is broad. If you go in saying, I've gone blind in one eye and my head hurts constantly, and your doctor tells you, I'd like you to live generally more in a healthier way, what do you want? You want a specific diagnosis of the disease with a specific cure. In fact, you want it as narrow as humanly possible. If you have a brain tumor or prostate cancer, you say, break out that gamma knife, but I, I need that to be tight. I mean, it's radiation. So I want it to be tight and narrow and only hit that which we want to kill. I want to be that precise. No doctor has ever come back and said, I think you're being kind of narrow and bigoted there. So it was fine when we used to cut away the entire thing, along with helpful, you know, healthy parts of like brain or tissue. Now, we are comfortable with narrow truths on things we can see and that science can prove, but should we be comfortable with the exact opposite with the things that we cannot see? Should we be comfortable saying, well, with this stuff, I'm kind of good not knowing generally, or I'm kind of good with everyone having an equal and right say. I'm sure it'll pan out in the end. You see, with the things that we can see, they only affect us while we're alive. But, and you can debate with me on this or not, if we have something called an immortal soul, is this something that you should be playing Russian roulette with? Comfortable that you might be right, comfortable that someone else might be right, or comfortable with you standing above it all saying, I guess everyone's right. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a narrow statement. 
isn't it? That there is no other way. But if he is offering life, life joyful and eternal, that's the right way. Isn't that what you want? If there is one way to health and prosperity in this life and you pursue it and it turns out to be right, will you complain that you didn't pursue these other paths? Now, we're all victims to what just philosophy and literature has done over the years, where it's now not about what God thinks and his perspective, but us and our perspective. And everything, whether it's your, I don't know, web blogs or news or uh, restaurant reviews, Twitter feeds, it's as if to say your view, your hit, your web hit, your Twitter, you know, just a hit, whatever, is all what's important. But let me invite you to turn it around and think, all right, if there is a God who created all things, had a design for everything that he made, and then made people as a special creature in his image so that he could have special relationship with that creature, do you think he has a say, a vested interest in how that creature lives? Now, what if said creature, us, decides to say, we'd rather live another way. And we'd rather give credit to everything that we see to someone else. Just looking at at from God's perspective, how should he react? And so C.S. Lewis, in, in in God in the Dock, as absolutely right as he says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance at all. But if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, I hope you followed my reasoning thus far, but I haven't given much reason for you to say, I want to investigate Christianity in its truth claims. But now we've come to the last point. Because there's one way that no one complains about narrowness. I've never heard anyone complain about it. No one complains about exclusivity, about narrowness, when you are in a deeply satisfying relationship, the, one, the kind where you are fully known and still, even still, deeply loved and accepted. All right, in marriage vows... I haven't done many weddings, but I haven't had any of the couples come to me and say, in the vows, can you also write, I promise to be true and faithful to you and whoever else might come along the way too that might help out. If you've been to such a wedding, please let me know because we need to be screaming in terror. So no one complains when you have this with someone. And Paul in this passage actually says, in the, second, in the second half, verse 27 on. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, I said this before, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, Paul wasn't saying to the Athenians, my truth is bigger than your truth. My truth is bigger than... Remember the song? So, he is saying that this truth is better because our God desires us, chases after us, dwells within us, and calls us his own children. See, please don't fool yourself into thinking that you can have a relationship with something that you have made or something that has been made. That's what he tells the Athenians. And that scripture tells to us all today. But God calls us into relationship with him. And this is, talk about exclusivity. There is no other faith in the world that says this, that God has come down to pursue us. They're all about us kind of coming up, lifting us ourselves up and hopefully getting noticed. But not so with our God. He calls us into relationship with him and even paves over what we did to break the relationship in the first place. He resolves that sin. How? How do we know this? What's the evidence? Because that's what you should be asking for. We have been going through rational arguments. So what is the evidence that we have been given that this can be true, that our God would possibly want relationship with us? And Paul says it, Right there in verse 31. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who? Who is this one he has appointed? His name is Jesus. Paul says because he raised, God raised Jesus from the dead, we can know that this is true. You know, next week, Pastor John will talking, be talking about, is Jesus God? But I've got to bust into it just a little bit, because God has shown us his love, the very representation of himself in Jesus, giving us the narrow way, the only truth, the sole way of life. And so the question comes to you, and me, to all of us who profess Christ right now, to those of you who are seeking, which path are you on? Because it isn't just about a label. Weeks ago, Pastor John said, try going a week, this week, without calling yourself a Christian, but a Christ follower. Why? Because it's not about the label any more than it matters. It will matter when you die, if you are a Mets fan or a Yankees fan or a Democrat or a Republican or a New Yorker or a Jerseyan. That might follow you, all right? So, but with this, the path that you are on, are you on the path of relationship with the God who has done all things and moved heaven and earth to have relationship with you? Or are you not? If you are not, you better give a good reason why. You should convince yourself beyond any shadow of a doubt because you're making a huge gamble. The choice is offered to you, not at a philosophical level or intellectual level, but in this relational level 
to have a religion-filled or religionless world, or to have a relationship with the living and true God, who we know if we know Jesus. And as to this claim that this narrowness needs to intolerance and violence, you know, we can see, unfortunately, like last month, or was it this month, um, with uh, the French publication Charlie Hebdo, Now, this is an atheistic publication that you and I would just cringe reading if it was ever translated into English. These are people who mock Jesus and Muhammad equally the same. And a few few weeks ago, just a couple gunmen in the name of Islam came and shot up, shot 11 of those editors and a police officer. And so this, maybe people will look at religion and say, oh, look, see, it leads to intolerance and violence. But Jay Smith, an evangelist to the Muslims, puts it this way. I am just as offended by this magazine and anything it says about Jesus as a Muslim is against anything it says about Muhammad. But what I desire is that for them, these editors, and for all in the world to know my Jesus. Can I introduce you to my Jesus? And what are we called to do? To share that. You know, in, in, in places, in the armed forces, in the military right now, especially in my precious Air Force, we have people being brought up on charges for sharing the gospel, saying, it is intolerant of you to share what you believe to others. You should not be allowed to do that. But let me ask this. If God is sending a lifeline to a dead and dying world, then the most compassionate thing that we can do is to share that truth with others and to bring them to life. And the most callous and violent thing that we can do to others is to keep that news for ourselves. And Pastor John, again, yesterday, said 95% of people he does not believe objects to narrowness. They object to the unlovingness that's often attached to narrowness. They will be disgusted by that. But when you hold to your truth and you are loving, you are compassionate and gentle and showing the love of Christ to others, Will people be won over by such great and glorious truth, narrow as it is? I hope that you believers will go with this compassionate narrowness to your family and friends and share Jesus. And for those of you who are questioning today, again, thank you for bearing with us this far. But I ask you to go a little further and read this text. If you came with a friend, go and ask that friend. Who is Jesus to you? And listen, honestly listen. You know, this this part of Acts ends saying, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris, 
and others with them. You know, with this college student that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, he really didn't have anything to say. Uh, just to this friend who said, are you looking for God? But he and I both agree that we hope our response, and I hope your response to that question would be, no, I found him because he found me. Can I tell you about my Jesus? I'm going to close with this. Phil Riken wrote in Jesus the Only Way, On the one hand, Christianity is the most exclusive religion imaginable. It insists that belief in Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation. Jesus is the only way. You must go to him to get eternal life. On the other hand, Christianity is the most inclusive religion possible because it makes salvation accessible to everyone. Salvation is offered for all people through one person. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Anyone who receives or believes in Jesus will live forever with God. There are no racial, social, intellectual, or economic criteria that prevent anyone from joining God's family. One of the problems with the other religions of the world is that they all smack of elitism. Only Christianity offers salvation to everyone as a free gift. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for this narrow truth, this grace, this wide grace and yet narrow truth offered to us. Because if you offered no truth to us, if you offered no grace to us, then we have no part of you, and we are all dead where we stand. We just don't know it yet. And in that ignorance, we hold on to all these things in the world, because nothing's changed. Everyone's trying to make their own way. Everyone's trying to set their own truth. But we thank you for shining your light into our darkness. We thank you for sending your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, showing what we mean to you, what you make of us, that you would send your only Son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven, that we might live because of Christ, in Christ. And I pray for all who are here, those who profess your name and those who don't yet, to see that truth, to see the Christ who died and is risen. We thank you for Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, please rise. Wow.